0: Well, if you're old enough to remember Saturday Night Live from the early 90s, uh, the title of my sermon is not going to come as a surprise to you. If you remember, uh, there were characters, Chris Kattan, Will Ferrell, they would wear these shiny shirts and they would go to these nightclubs and they would dance and they would bob their head side to side to a song that you probably wouldn't have heard before. It's that, what is love, baby don't hurt me. These were, were, were men who were stuck in, in some uh, uh, past days where they were dancing and, and trying to meet women and their dancing was awful and they could never meet any women. But the question that they asked, or at least that song asked, is what is love? Pretty theological question, isn't it? What is love? Well, the reality is that love is something that we often talk about, but we really don't care to define very much or at least very well. Maybe it's that it's understood by so many people that we just don't need a definition. But it does seem like in our culture today, it does seem like that the word love has a bunch of different definitions that we don't agree with. That someone could say that they love something or that love is love or that they love this person or they love that person. And we as Christians would hear that and say, that's not the kind of love that I know. So what is love? Love. We're actually forced to ask this question, and to even ask another one, what does love have to do with anything, right? If we are just a product of some accident, this cosmic accident where we have no purpose, we have no plan, then what does it matter if we love one another? This is a question that we have to ask. And if we accept the common definitions, we're left with a mixed up jumble of a variety of opinions, feelings, and emotions, that doesn't really get to the point of what love actually is. For the Christian, love is defined by God, not just in words, but in also what he's done. We pattern our life uh, by imitating how Jesus lived. Jesus shows his followers sacrificial love, and we follow in the same way. Now, it's much easier said than done, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to say, I love you, brother, than it is to actually show that person that you love them. It's a whole lot easier to tell someone that you love them than sacrificing things that you want and you desire to be a blessing to someone else. But if we didn't need to hear this, would Jesus have said this at all? I mean, how many times have you seen in the Gospels Jesus talk about love? How many times have you seen in Paul's letters Paul talking about love. Love for one another, love for God, but also love for our community, love for our neighbors, love for those who hate us. The entire Bible really revolves around God's holiness through his saving of sinners, through the sacrificial death of his son. Now, why did he do that? Because he wanted to see, he wanted to show the world how holy he is by doing something that is so loving and incomprehensible that that only he could do it. The Bible says that some people call this foolishness. That God would sacrifice his son to bless those who hated him. See, our love for God and our love for each other defines who we are. If we don't have love for one another, our words are like clanging symbols, pointless and annoying. They serve no purpose. But when we follow Christ in obedience, our words are shown by our love and it's no longer clanging symbols, but it's an orchestra, perfectly tuned and beautifully arranged. The question I've been asking myself is, isn't this what I'm after? As a church, isn't this what we want to be known by? We want to be known by our love Obedience to Christ and love within the Christian family. And that naturally flows out of our hearts and to other people in this church, but it also goes out of these doors. It goes to people who do not know Christ. They see our love for them, and it shines a spotlight on the gospel. So, what is love? It's a big question, because in essence, we could say, well, we love pizza. We love our neighborhood. We love our spouse. But those three are very different types of love, aren't they? The reality is, if you love pizza the same way you love your spouse, you have major, major marital issues and other issues as well. But different story. See, the English language doesn't really capture this very well because we use the word love for everything. I love that. I love that. But there are different definitions of love. Even in the Bible, there's three words that, in Greek that love is translated into, and the first is eros. This is passionate love that is often lust more than anything else. It's where we get the word erotic from. It's from the word eros in Greek. The second is phileo, and you'll recognize this from the city of Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love. This is a friendship kind of love. This is a a love that, that is a brotherly or sisterly kind of affection, the affection that the church should have really for one another regularly. But finally, the third type of love is called agape. This love is an outpouring of oneself. It's a love that runs deeper than physical love or friendly love. It's a love that God has perfectly exhibited for us. Agape is the word that Jesus used in John 4 when he says that God is love. This is who God is. Agape love is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says in Colossians 3 that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, do everything in love. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture The idea of God loving us and us loving God in return, but us loving one another. So what is love? I've asked that question a few times. Jared Wilson, in his new book, Love Me Anyway, defines love as this. An orientation toward others for their glory and for their good. That's what love is. That's that's agape love. It's sacrificial love. It's love that we don't have to give, but we want to give and we Hurt ourselves in the process. Romans 5, 8 says this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his agape love for us. The suffering of Christ was what we earned, but God sent his son Jesus to suffer and die in our place. And Jesus said this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This theme of love runs throughout the teachings of Jesus. It's not some sappy, sentimental love. As much as I admit this, it's not a Hallmark movie love. It's not a friendship kind of love. This is a deep, sacrificial love that Jesus has given to us, that God has given to us. Think about this for a second. God created everything and everyone. Everything that we see around us is a product of God's creation. He loved us so much that He gave us life. He loved us so much that He gave us everything that we see and enjoy. And yet we still rebel against Him. And yet He still loves us. And for His children, there is nothing that we can do to unearn that love because it's a gift that God has given to us because he loves us so much. So I want to look at this today, this definition of love that we're working with, an orientation toward others for their glory and for their good. And I want to start in this passage, it's a little jumbled, but I want to start by looking at what love is not first. Sometimes it's helpful to see what something isn't before we see what something is. So... Look at this passage. Paul gives us eight negatives and seven positives. The first thing that we see is that love is not envious. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul criticizes the church for having factions in the family. And what this was happening there is that some were dividing over their favorite or preferred teachers. Hey, we like this guy, and so we're going to go over here. Well, you like those guys, so we're going to go over here. And Paul says, wait a minute. You say that some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. But the reality is that you guys are on the same team. You're going in the same direction. You're all worshiping the same God. You're all singing praises to the same Christ. You have no business dividing. They're envious of one another. There's jealousy in the ranks. They're splitting the fellowship. And see, envy is so pernicious because it's often couched in statements that we celebrate. We celebrate. How many times have we been motivated to work harder because we want more? We see something that someone else has and we want that. That's what we want. Man, that's a nice car. I want that car. I wish I had their house. I've talked to enough people. I wish I had a different spouse. I'm not saying that for me, because I certainly don't, but but I've heard people say that. A few weeks ago, I can I said that I, you could tell a lot about a person by their YouTube history. Well, in addition to watching videos of cobblers fixing shoes and guys trimming the hooves of cows, I've been watching a lot of real estate videos, and not just any real estate videos, but New York City apartment videos. And it's amazing, because it's insane how expensive those apartments can be. You get this little closet and it's $3,000 a month. I mean, it, just how people can live, I have no idea. But the other day I, I stumbled across a guy who does luxury apartments, penthouses. And so he's walking through this and he's talking about the sinks and how it's made out of onyx. I don't know what onyx is other than it's really expensive. And he, he's showing all of these brass fixtures and, and these lights that cost $20,000 a piece. and Just, just insanity. And this apartment was over $100 million to buy. And so my thought was man, I wish I had that much money. I I wish I had enough money to have a, a penthouse in New York City. I love cities, so I could go and visit, and I wish I had that kind of money. That's envy. I was envious of whoever's gonna buy that because, well, man. I think I do a a good job in what I do. Why does that guy get all that money to be able to spend on that, right? That's envy. And Paul is concerned with envy in the church because of what it does. Two things, it's not satisfied with with what we have, but it also splits. Here, Paul is not concerned about the YouTube videos that I watch. He's not concerned about the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. That's, That's not his concern, But he says that envy brings bitterness, and bitterness destroys relationships. I've heard people say, well, man, they don't deserve that. Why can't can't I be in that position? This destroys relationships, and it often surfaces in discussions about fairness. But in the end, it's just envy. The second thing we see about love is that it is not boastful. We can boast in ourselves, attempting to to get people to think that we're better than we really are, or we can boast about others, which is just flattery. See, authentic love does not need to boast about itself or even about others. Love is also not arrogant. I read something the other day that says, arrogance is when someone thinks that they have all the answers and they stop listening. It's the definition of arrogance. It refuses to value the thoughts and opinions of others. Love is also not rude. This means without good order. Now we've all seen rude behavior. We've seen children, right, who who throw a fit and when they don't get their way and they flop down on the ground and start screaming and rolling around in the ground. We've also seen adults do things like that, don't we? We, We've seen adults in a checkout line argue over 10 cents, right? We've seen that where they scream and want to go Karen and be a manager, find a manager, right? We've seen that. That's rude. The idea is that, that love does not exhibit shameful behavior. Love is not focused on its own way. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about this directly. He says that Christians should not seek their own good, and instead they should seek the advantage of the many. What I want doesn't really matter. It's what someone else needs. What I want gets, gets put down, and, and what someone else wants or someone, what someone else needs gets put in its place. We're to care about our neighbors, beginning in the church and then in the community, before we care about our own desires. And why does this matter? Paul says at the end of chapter 10 that, that he does these things. He puts others' needs uh, first so that people may come to know Christ. This is our aim, to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And we do this through worshipful worshipful living and a focus on spreading the gospel in whatever sphere that God has placed us in. If we're focused on our rights, what we deserve, what we have, we've taken our eyes off of caring for others. Love is also not irritable. It's not touchy. Love does not have a short fuse. It is not resentful. It doesn't keep a record of past wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Now, something you may have noticed here, and I, and I know this, the Bible, does not, the Bible says that no one is good, no not one, we know that. There are no good people. Because our goodness is not in comparison to one another, but in comparison to the perfection of Christ. So there are no good people. But when I say someone is a good dude or a good person, you know what I mean. You get that. You get that terminology. What I mean is that these descriptions that love is not, that doesn't describe what we would call a good person. See, no one wants to be around someone who's rude, arrogant, or envious. Someone who's ruled by love for others works hard to eliminate those things from their life. We do our best with our children to train them to not be these things, don't we? We train our kids to not be rude, to not be envious. We have to train them because they're born that way, aren't they? And if you don't believe me, you never have to train a child how to lie, do you? You do not have to train a child not to hit, or to train them to hit. You tell them, don't hit. You don't have to tell a child, hey, steal that. No, they'll do it on their own. Sin resides in our hearts even when we're babies. Building on that thought, though, if we treat others like these points that we've just seen, these eight negatives, if we treat others like that we've done something else, we've forgotten that people, every person, is an image bearer and that they have worth. It ought to change the way that we treat others. Well, then Paul, in the middle of that, Paul goes from negative to the positives And in this he gives us seven things that love is. So we've seen eight things that love is not and seven things that love is. The first being love is patient. The Greek word here um, is translated as to put anger far away. So you're angry, you put it far away. You don't, don't give in to your anger, you send it away. Maybe you could say delayed wrath. Where anger is deserved, but instead of being angry, you move on. A good example of this is a powerful person who has the power or the ability to retaliate, but chooses not to. Many examples of this in Scripture. um, Beginning with God being long-suffering. I mean, that word is in Scripture that God is long-suffering with his people. That we continue to sin and he continues to love and show patience to us. Think about this, David's interactions with Saul. Saul was threatening to David and so David ran and David hides in a cave. Saul and his 3,000 men come up and Saul goes into the cave that David was in to relieve himself. So picture this as best you can in a PG sense. Saul is standing against a wall, using it for a toilet. David sees him, sneaks up behind him, takes out his, his, his knife, and cuts a piece of his robe off. He could have killed him. There's no one else in there. David could have killed Saul and said, I am king. He could have proclaimed himself king. But instead, he follows Saul out of the cave, and he waves that piece of robe and says, look, I could have done this. But I didn't. And and just a few chapters after that instance, David does something similar to that again. Showing great patience. And we don't have a a word in English that really encapsulates this, uh, but the best way I could describe this is the power to destroy an enemy, but out of love, someone chooses not to. This is the story of God's dealing with humanity. God, like David in the cave, except infinitely more, God shows patience to us, because he loves us. Love is also kind. This means to be selfless or mild. When we started in seminary, we moved to to North Carolina, and the seminary that I attended first had uh, probably about a third of the students were missionaries. And so they would come and study for two years, and then they would go on the mission field for a few years and finish their studies remotely. And without fail, without exception, every single missionary that I met on campus had a very similar personality. They were all very even keel. They they were not down. They were not up. They were just who they were. And and I I realized pretty quickly, I would not be a very good missionary. I'm too high strung. I talk too loud. I get too excited. I'm too pushy sometimes. And, And the missionary would sit there and, yeah. They adapt to different situations in life. They have this uncanny gift or ability, whatever you want to call it, to be mild, to show kindness. This is the kind of kindness I think Paul's talking about this this ability to, to love someone by listening, to love someone by not insisting on getting your own way. Well, love also rejoices with the truth. This should also bring back memories of 1 Corinthians 3 church divided over their favorite leaders. And Paul says, we are one team. We have different gifts, but we're all going in the same direction. And Paul lived this out. If you remember in Acts chapter 11, Paul comes to Antioch, and he sees that there are new believers. He hasn't been there in a little bit. And he says, there are new believers there. Now, he could have done one of two things. He could have gotten territorial, and said, well, they're not followers of me, Someone else led them to the Lord. And Paul says, no. I celebrate that they came to know Christ. I celebrate the gospel moving in them, whether it was me or anybody else. Love also bears all things. This means that love protects others. Genuine love is long-suffering. Genuine love refuses to gossip or to listen to gossip. Now we do the opposite, don't we? When I've been hurt, I want the person who hurt me to hurt just as well. But that's not love. That's not what a Christian should want. E- even for those who hate us, we should seek to protect them and to show our love by not gossiping, not give, by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Love believes all things. And this statement doesn't mean that love causes us to forsake truth. It doesn't tell us that, that love means that we don't uh, deal with issues of, of bad doctrine. What Paul's saying here is that love is not suspicious. Love does not seek to harm another. Even when someone is guilty, love for that person should care about the truth. It's hatred to believe the worst about someone. Love believes the best until we're proven otherwise. Love hopes all things. This is what we cling to. And finally, love endures all things. This is a a compound word that means um, to remain under. It's kind of a military term for when an army holds a position at all costs. It endures all things. Look at Acts 7. Stephen is about to be stoned to death. And look look how he responds to this. It says, now when they had heard these things, they were enraged. Stephen's preaching. And then they ground their teeth at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. As the stones were coming, he says this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, he died. His last words as he was having these giant boulders thrown at him was, Lord, forgive them for this. He knows he's about to die, and rather than cursing the men who are killing him, he says, don't hold it against them. This is patience of the weak in the middle of suffering. Now, as we've gone through each word that Paul includes, I know what you're thinking, because this is what I'm thinking, too. This is not possible. There is absolutely no way that I can do these things here in Scripture. I can't measure up to this. I fail. No one can do this other than Jesus, but no one can do this. So I'd ask you this. Are you always patient, kind, truthful, hopeful in every relationship that you have? I'm not. And I I know you're not either. None of us are. My friends can tell you that I can be unkind. My family will tell you that I'm not very patient. So we just often just look at these things, and we see it in Scripture, and we say, well, these are just a bunch of rules that we are to follow. This is the argument that I get as I talk to people about Christ. Often I get, well, you know, the Bible is just a set of rules, and and there's just too many of them to follow, and, and there's no way anybody can follow them. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. There is no way you can follow these. We have the Ten Commandments, we have the commands of Jesus, we have Paul's instructions to the early church, and when we put our lives up against scripture, we see that we fail over and over again. But I want to challenge you to think about these in a different way. I want to challenge you to think in terms of sports, specifically baseball. If you know anything about baseball, a hitter that can bat 300 is a very, very good hitter. Batting 300 simply means that 30% of your at bats result in hits. Only 15 players this past season batted over 300, so out of hundreds and hundreds of players, only 15 achieved this. It's a, a remarkable feat. Ted Williams is probably the greatest hitter to ever live, and he batted 344 for Lifetime, meaning that only 34% of the time he got a hit. There's a stat that is used by modern baseball fans called on-base percentage, and all that it means is the percentage of time that you somehow get on base. Ted Williams is number one all time, and he only has 48% of the time he got on base, which means that 52% of the time he got out. And he's the greatest ever. Michael Jordan missed more shots than he made. And yet he's still the greatest basketball player of all time. See, while I was in school, I I tried to use these numbers to get out of the 60s and 70s that I got on my tests, and I tried to argue that Hall of Famers get 34% of their their hits and they get on, you know, get to the Hall of Fame, and you're failing me for getting a 60. I'd be the greatest hitter ever. They they didn't listen. But here's what I'm getting after. Paul knew. Paul knew that no one could achieve all of these things. Paul knew that there's a standard that's set that none of us can meet. And so some of you are wondering, well, why even give it to us then? Is it just a a waste of space to tell us something that we have to do that we can't do? What's the purpose? Think about Ted Williams and Michael Jordan. Two of the greatest. But they were never satisfied. Their greatness kept pushing them further and further and further into greatness. They studied and trained so that the next time they faced a challenge, they'd have a better chance of success. It drove them to be great. Now apply this to your life. You will never reach perfection in terms of the commands we find in Scripture. You're never going to do it. There is no way that you can keep all of these commands that we find in the Bible. Absolutely no way. But what do you do? You keep striving. You keep working to improve. You keep pushing forward so that the next time you face that thing, you can beat it. You can get through it by the grace of God. You keep working by maintaining spiritual disciplines. See, this list that Paul gives is not a litmus test for being a Christian. He's not saying, well, if you don't always do these things, you're out of the club. That's not what Paul's saying. He says, this is what you're aiming for. And we've seen this over and over again. Those standards that we see in 1 Timothy and Titus uh, of being an elder, there is not one human being alive today that meets those standards perfectly. So what do we do? We give up being pastors? No. It means this is our goal. This is what we're aiming for. This is what our life is striving to be. But it is our measuring stick, these standards in Scripture. Now, You're thinking maybe, wait wait, wait a minute, you just said that we can't do these, these things, and now you're saying they're our measuring stick. Make up your mind. I agree. The fact that we can't get there is the point. The fact that we can't do these things is the point. You and I do not love enough. You and I are not good enough to please God. We do not love well enough. We're not patient or kind like we need to be. We're resentful and more irritable than we ought to be. We fail at these things. So then you say, well, what's the point then? The point is to point you to the person who measures up. The point is to say that you on your own can't do these things. You are not loving enough to achieve these things, to follow these things. But I'm pointing you to the one who is and who has. Pointing you to Christ. Remember, love is an orientation toward others for their glory and for their good. Jared Wilson also writes this. The invitation to love is an invitation to die to yourself and live for the good of others. And who do we look to? We look to Jesus. Jesus died for sinners, his enemies. He died for those who hated him. He died for people who blasphemed his name. He died for people who murdered him. Jesus took on flesh to become a substitute for us. This is the love that Jesus has given to us. These lists, the Ten Commandments, 1 Corinthians 13, are our measuring stick because it's what we aim to be. We want to grow in our holiness. We want to live lives that glorify God. We want to live in such a way that shines for the gospel. But these lists cannot show, or they do show that we just don't measure up. We cannot love enough. You could be the most loving human being in the world and you're still not loving enough. So I want to take a moment to share why you're not loving enough and why I'm not loving enough and why I'm not good enough. We, we preach the gospel here. We try our best to do it every single week where we're proclaiming the goodness of, of, of God through the saving of sinners. And we use the term gospel, and sometimes we assume that you know what we mean. So I want to share this gospel message, and I want to use Romans 1 through 4 as an example. First, in Romans 1, Paul tells the reader that they are accountable to God. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed... From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is our diagnosis. When you go to a doctor and you get an MRI done, the doctor doesn't come in and say, well, you need surgery. He tells you, here is what's causing the problem for you. Let me show you the picture of of how, and this happened to me, the picture of how your disc in your neck is pushing against your spinal cord. If you don't do something, you will have the spinal cord severed. And so then the doctor says, here's the solution. The surgery is the solution. But they always tell you the problem first. This is Romans 1. Second, Paul tells the reader that the problem everyone must deal with is that they have rebelled against God. Romans 1, and 23 says this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. This description of our condition extends from the end of Romans 1 into Romans 2. It says this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse. Because of our willful rebellion, we have no excuse before God. Our sin has made us guilty, and the only right punishment for that rebellion is death. Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, every one of us, is in this state. God cannot allow sin to achieve victory, so the guilty verdict demands justice. Now based on our human system of justice, that would not be fair. Yes, you've committed one sin, so we execute you. That, That would be ridiculous for us to do, right? But James 2.10 says, forever who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Our sin, one sin, is the same as committing endless sin. It renders us guilty before God. The gospel tells us there is no way that we can accomplish perfection on our own. No matter how much good we do or how much we love others, nothing is good enough. There is nothing that we can do to make us right in the eyes of God. I'm sure others will see philanthropy. They'll see our service. But where man sees the outside, God looks at the heart. Our sin prevents us from saving ourselves. We are hopeless and helpless. We are dead. Now here's a third point. Paul says that the solution to our problem is the sacrificial death burial, and resurrection of Christ. Romans 3, through 24 says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5 8, God shows his love for us in that, and here's that love term again, right? The same love, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived a perfect life so that his righteousness could be given to us. So think about this as a covering, that his perfection is covering all of the filthiness that we have. It washes us clean. It takes a black heart and makes it clean. It takes something that is dead and makes it alive. Finally, Paul tells The reader, he tells us how they can be included in this salvation. Romans 3.22 says that salvation belongs to all who believe. Jerry Bridges is an author, and he writes this. We owe an enormous spiritual debt to God, a debt that we can't begin to pay. There is no way that we can make it good. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ paid our debt, but it also tells us far more. It tells us that we are no longer enemies and objects of his wrath. We are now his sons and daughters, heirs with Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel that God sent his son to live a perfect life and to die for us, to give us his righteousness as he bears the weight, the burden of our sin on his shoulders. There is no greater love than this. Don't leave here this morning without examining the eternal significance of this for you. Christian and non-Christian both, we need to hear this message. We need to hear that the greatest example of love is God sending his son to us and to die for us so that we could be made right, so that we could boldly approach the throne of the Father and say, I am no longer your enemy, I am your adopted son or daughter. And the Father says, you are clean you are righteous, that when I look at you, I see my son. If you're not a believer, do not let this pass one ear and out the other. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And for the Christian, Christ is our measuring stick, but we know that we fail, and every single time we fail, Jesus is lifting us up higher and higher. And we celebrate this kind of love. Would you pray with